I want to introduce our speaker for today. We're very lucky to have Albert Harrell, Bert Harrell, here with us. He's professor of history and classics at The Ohio State University, and currently in this semester is holding a visiting appointment at Williams College as the Krogan Bicentennial Visiting Professor in Biblical and Early Christian Studies. He did his BA at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and his MA and PhD from the University of Chicago. He's received important awards, which I envy, including the Von Humboldt Research Fellowship and an NEH summer stipend. Bert was far ahead of the rest of us who were catching up to his work on slavery. So many of us are now interested in the study of slavery in early Christianity. His first book from 1995 was on the manumission of slaves in early Christianity. And since then, he's worked on another book, Slaves in the New Testament, Literary, Social, and Moral Dimensions, a book that I think many of us very much appreciate. And Bert has attained the semi-canonical status of being on general examinations, <laughs> making people both knowledgeable and slightly miserable, maybe. So <laughs> thank you for that. His most recent book is Paul the Apostle, His Life and Legacy in the Roman Context, which has just been translated into Czech. What exciting. He has more than 50 additional articles, journal entries, and book reviews, which I cannot list for you at this time. His next project is a commentary on Ephesians in the Anchor Yale Bible series, and I know many of us are very excited to see that work. Um, so please uh, welcome with me today Bert Harrell on his, for his lecture on Paul in Rome, question mark. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thank you very much, Laura. I um, did want to say one thing about my background, that I came from the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, and I was a religious studies major. And uh, I remember at the time, my parents were always wondering, what can you do with a religious studies major? And um, in, uh, in Chapel Hill, the religious studies department it shares a, a building where the upstairs, there's only two floors, is geography. And uh, I always thought maybe I should have done geography instead. And I thought about this um, really hard because in the late 80s, the Carolina Alumni Association conducted a salary survey of UNC graduates. And the goal was to find which department produces students that earn the most on average 10 years after they got their degrees. Um, I think this must have been in the 90s then uh, because the answer was geography. The average starting salary of a geography student graduating from the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill was over uh, $200,000 a year. That's very impressive until you think about who was a geography, a geography major when I was there, and that was Michael Jordan. <laughs> and uh, so I actually um, sort of, you, I graduated with Michael Jordan. I tell this to my students. They get very impressed when I say that. And we, uh, we graduated uh, in Keenan Football Stadium. There were 4,000 of our closest friends that day. And um, he went to Chicago, and I went to Chicago. So I kind of think we have parallel lives. But um, <laughs> I still remember that uh, alumni newsletter. And my parents were like, why didn't you major in geography? And I finally explained to them statistics and the difference between an average and a mean. And, um, so, but I guess the lesson for this, for my talk today, is always question your sources. Always question your sources. Um, so first I'd like to thank uh, Laura Nasrallah for extending the kind invitation and also to Jenny Knutz and David Frankfurter for their generous co-sponsorship. 
I'm humbled um, by the honor to speak here in Andover Hall, this is my first lecture at Harvard, and to be a part of BU's Brown Lecture Series. So let me begin by providing some background on how this essay came to be and explaining the question mark in my title. You see, this essay will appear in the upcoming Cambridge Companion to the Age of Nero, edited by Shadi Barch, Kedrick Littlewood, and Kirk Freundenberg. The aim of my contribution is to discuss St. Paul and the Christian communities in Nero's Rome for the volume's target audience of readers in classics and ancient history. I, wanted to, I, was, asked to ask, um, I was asked to answer uh, a number of questions, including, so what about the martyrdom of Paul within the larger context of the political and ethnic purges that were carried out late in Nero's reign? My initial response to these questions was, are you kidding? Such a chapter would be very tiny. <laughs> because our evidence for Paul in Rome, um, or his so-called Neronian travails, is problematic at best. And that was news to my editors. So I decided to make the investigation of that problem itself, about the nature of our available source material, the focus of the entire essay. And so here it is. Scholars often follow uh, church tradition to tell a familiar story about St. Paul and the Christian communities of Nero's Rome. This story links the apostles' martyrdom with the epic horror of the Great Fire of July 64. In the conflagration's aftermath, so the story goes, the megalomaniac Nero became the first persecutor of the church when he scapegoated as the alleged arsonist local Christians among them Paul or Saul of Tarsus. Yet such legends should not be taken at face value. They built upon and exploited the tales of Nero's purges to remake Paul into a martyr and the ultimate civic hero, who by the fourth century had replaced Romulus as the second founder of Rome. Christian writers in late antiquity developed these legendary fictions largely from stock themes of anti-Neronian satire and invective that were commonplace in their Roman literary culture. The aim of my talk is to clear out the mythology of Paul's Neronian travails in order to look carefully of, about, at what we can know about the earliest Christians in Rome and how later writers built on and exploited fictions about Paul and Nero. Rather than historically reliable sources, it was Roman satire and invective assailing Nero as the archetypal bad emperor in anti-figure that provided the chief back background and themes into which later Christian authors set their fanciful narratives of Paul's martyrdom. The matrix generating the monster the tyrant Nero in late ancient Christian culture was the widespread criticism of Nero in the Flavian era, which flourished under Trajan and then turned upon Domitian as Nero redux or redivivus. Open equations between Domitian and Nero fueled apocalyptic oracles about an eschatological adversary, which eventually fashioned Nero as the Antichrist. Accounts of Paul's Neronian travails thus reveal more about how late ancient Christians 
remembered the age of Nero than about how the earliest followers of Jesus in Rome may have lived or died in that so-called age. The first section of my paper makes the case for Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, around 58, as opposed to the book of Acts, written for between 95 and 115, as the best primary source for early Christianity in Rome, and explains what little we can learn about Paul's relationship with these congregations from the, lit from the letter's general ad hoc choice of themes and its stated purpose of preparing Paul's final journeys uh, to Jerusalem, Rome, and then ultimately Spain. An evaluation of the principal arguments in the so-called Romans debate, which seek to find a more concrete purpose for the letter as a response to some present issue in Nero's Rome, constitutes the second section. The essay then concludes with the reception of Nero in early Christian writings, showing how Nero became cast into antichrist myths and thus why so many stories of Paul in Nero's Rome were developed and taken to be meaningful. So the, my first section, the best primary evidence, Paul's epistle to the Romans. Paul wrote this letter in order to commend his gospel and himself to co-religionists in Rome in advance of his intended stopover in the imperial capital on his way to a new mission in Spain. This is from Romans 15. Unlike his other extant letters, the apostle addressed this one to Christ believers whom he had not converted in a city he had never visited. Because he had not founded these congregations, Paul had no authority over them, which explains the letter's unusually elongated style and content. Paul asks rhetorical questions quotes popular maxims and proverbs, parodies rival positions, personifies stock dramatic characters, and uses the rhetoric of antistheses and reductio ad absurdum. Greco-Roman popular philosophers deployed this form of protreptic discourse, a kind of introduction, with its schoolroom style of apostrophe called diatribe to introduce their distinctive tenets to an audience of potential students. Paul desired to visit the Christian community in Rome for many years. He says this in Romans 15.23. Now, because the, the epistle likely dates to around 58, the earliest of the congregations evidently arose sometime in the 40s. If they had heard of Paul at all, the Christians in Rome likely knew him only by reputation and with some suspicion though a few individuals apparently were acquainted with him personally, uh, Romans 16, 3 to 15. Uh, this mixed response reflect, uh, reflects first century Christianity's diversity. It was not a single unified movement or religion separate from the varieties of ancient Judaism. There was no standardized or orthodox faith, ecclesiastical hierarchy, or centralized institution. The tiny Christian communities in Rome were, as one scholar puts it, fractionated into various house-based congregations, a diversity persisting well into the second and third centuries. The fractionated groups did share expressions of solidarity, but also engaged in activities of self-definition, aimed at constructing boundaries between each other by means of different scriptural practices, rituals, and teachings about Jesus. In Nero's Rome, as elsewhere, 
to, um, to become and be a Christ believer meant strong social change. Entry into a household association that called itself a new family, shunning involvement in any other cult, and learning to expect hostility from outside society, including formal relationships and sources of identity. The earliest congregation in, congregations in Rome evidently arose among the city's substantial Jewish communities concentrated um, around the um, Via Appia outside the Porta Campina where the poorest of Rome's uh, peregrini or foreigners resided. Crossing these crowded neighborhoods uh, were the major thoroughfares on which multitudes of immigrants and other travelers flowed into Rome. Paul aspired to be one of those travelers to the imperial capital. Substituting for his physical presence, the letter lauds the global fame of the Roman congregations. Quote, Paul writes, your faith is proclaimed throughout the world, Romans 1.8, and this is with much hyperbole. For them, Paul writes, he will violate his rule not to evangelize, quote, where Christ is already named. Romans 15.20, because the whole world is represented in Rome, all the nations, Paul writes in Romans 1.5-6. Paul's language thus participates in a particularly Roman mapping of people by their provinces and around a single imperium. Rome, not Zion, is the center. Like the imperial map of the res gestae by the Emperor Augustus, Paul's itinerary uses the language of reaching limits and it deploys the particularly Roman meaning of imperium as a sphere of duties granted to an overseas envoy, or Greek apostolos. I'd like to note this vision of an alternative imperium would later serve as a foundation for later devotees honoring Paul with Roman imperial honors. Although not their apostle, Paul engages the Roman Christians in his mission nonetheless because of their very geography. The letter explains his plans uh, to stay only long enough to have, quote, enjoyed your company for a little while while en route to Spain, imploring them to help him out with the travel costs and to pray for him in his appointed tasks beforehand. Underscoring the mutual profit that Paul and the Roman believers will be to each other, the letter qualifies any potential misstatement to the contrary. The letter apologizes for occasionally lapsing into a balsy tone in parts, for Paul's repeated failures to come sooner, and for yet another delay due to, the, to a necessary return back to Jerusalem. Paul must first deliver to Jerusalem a collection of money he has raised from his Gentile congregations for the poor in the Judean churches, the crowning achievement of his Aegean mission. After that task, the letter promises Paul will succeed at last in his long-standing goal, uh, quote, of many years um, to visit Rome, uh, Romans 15, 23. In the meantime, the letter designates Paul's patron, a prostatus, Phoebe, a minister or diaconos of a church, of a house church in Cancrei, a seaport near Corinth, as the letter's carrier and envoy. The letter thus aims to persuade the Roman congregations to join his gospel and particular circle of supporters. The letter's conclusion greets a remarkably large number of persons in chapter 16 in comparison with other Pauline letters. The greetings single out 
personal co-workers and leaders of house churches in a position to be Paul's advocates within the Roman congregation. Uh, the turn of epistolary greetings toward Paul's own need for local advocacy suggests that he had only a limited number of first-hand acquaintances in Rome. From these few mutual acquaintances, Paul supposed his Roman readers to be, like him, Greek-speaking urban residents and autonomous Christ believers already familiar with Judaism. The letter's composition in Greek, its extensive quotations of the Hebrew Bible in a Septuagint version, and its particular techniques of biblical exegesis, known as Pesher and Midrash, all suggest an invited audience knowledgeable about Torah Hellenistic Jewish scriptural practices, dietary regulations, synagogue prayer, apocalyptic eschatology, and messianic expectations. The letter cultivates a common ground of that shared religiosity. Calls to obey imperial authorities, a stock of commonplace paranesis or moral exhortation in diaspora synagogue preaching, makes intelligible why Paul's letters explicitly, why Paul's letter explicitly advises the recipients to obey imperial authorities in Romans 13, including doubtless the Emperor Nero. Paul's language, borrowed from the diaspora synagogue, stands in sharp contrast to the later portrayal of Nero's persecution of the Christian communities. The legend of Paul's Neronian travails does not, therefore, originate with Paul's letter to the Romans. Nor does such a negative portrayal appear where we would expect it the most in Paul's so-called prison epistles, Ephesians, Colossians, uh, Philippians, Philemon, with 2 Timothy. To understand the nature of these sources, we need to know that a consensus of biblical scholars holds that Paul did not write all the letters attributed to him in the New Testament. Among the imprisoned epistles, only Philippians and Philemon are considered authentic, the rest forgeries made after Paul's death. Regardless of where the historical Paul was imprisoned, and Ephesus is the leading guess of most scholars today, he expects freedom soon, uh, Philippians 1, uh, 18-19, and he requests a guest room in Philemon 22. The two authentically Pauline prison letters thus provide no evidence of an impending martyrdom or an imprisonment necessarily in Rome. So, so far, we are still left with Romans as the first uh, and primary evidence, the apostles' probably last known writing. Now, an alternative hypothesis, however, identifies Philippians, or a fragment embedded in it, as Paul's final writing, allegedly composed in Rome during his so-called Neronian imprisonment. But this claim is based on the slim evidence of only two passing references. Uh, in Philippians 1.13, a praetorium, either a palace or a cohorse praetoria, and Philippians 4.22 um, that talks about those of the emperor's household, or the familia Caesaris. Now, these two references are far from obvious. Praetorium does not have to refer to the Praetorian Guard because it also names the residence, even if temporary, of a provincial prefect. And the members of the familia Caesaris, the emperor's slaves and freedmen, could be found in any major city of the Roman Empire. 
So as a side note, I find Ephesus to be the most likely city. And you might have noticed that the uh, poster for this event um, actually is a famous uh, fresco, uh, 5th century fresco painting of St. Paul in a grotto above Ephesus. So when this hit social media, apparently someone complained, Paul in Rome, but this is from Ephesus. So I guess I can say that uh, my poster hinted at this hypothesis. <laughs> So what do we do next with our sources? Well, we might turn to the canonical Acts of the Apostles to provide more data. Given the importance of Paul as a major character in that book and its coherence as a narrative, but such a proposal has the advantage, so although such a proposal has the advantage of including one of the earliest and most extensive sources on Paul by later interpreters, it would also be inadequate because modern critical scholars dispute the historical reliability of Acts. Acts is not a history uh, in the modern meaning of the term. Rather, its theological narrative presents Paul schematically as the greatest hero of a unified church who brings the gospel from its origins in, uh, in Jerusalem to Rome with powerful orations, spectacular miracles, and dramatic adventures is God's, quote, chosen vessel of salvation, from Acts 9.15. Accepting the book of Acts literally as straightforward and unproblematic evidence for Paul's life is naive. In any case, the work does not provide the additional data we seek to be sure, the book of Acts narrates the dramatic and detailed adventure of Paul's arrest in Jerusalem, his series of trials before Roman uh, Jewish royals and Roman magistrates, his appeal based on the legal status of being a full Roman citizen to move the hearing to Rome with Caesar, who's unnamed, presumably Nero, as the final judge, his transport to Rome as a prisoner for trial on capital charges before the emperor, and his final days under house arrest in a Roman apartment while awaiting the trial. The last lines in Acts imply strongly that Paul would be found guilty and ex executed in the near future. Yet the story ends oddly, without narrating the expected appeal before the emperor or Paul's death. Because Paul's impending martyrdom in Acts so stereotypically parallels Jesus' death as a martyrdom in Luke's gospel, the first half of the author's two-part work called Luke-Acts, the narrative is likely an artificial literary creation. Indeed, the whole account of Paul's last days is strange. The Luke and Paul has time and interest only for the, Luke, for the local Jewish communities and especially its leaders, not for the Roman Christian community and, and certainly not with being its founder. Such a community, um, to all intents and purposes of the plots, is non-existent. The work's open ending and the absence of the Roman churches thus renders Acts largely unhelpful in our inquiry into Nero, Paul, and the Christian communities in Rome. We thus return to Paul's letter to the Romans as our best primary source on this question. From an examination of this letter, we've learned a little about Paul's relationship with the Christian communities in Rome. Uh, first, Paul was a stranger to them. An elaborated epistolary opening and closing, together with the trick of a diatribal style to unfold themes in the letter's body, indicates a need to introduce both himself and his basic teachings. Second, Paul hoped to engage the Roman congregations into his autonomous missionary circle, separate from rival Christian communities and apostles of Messiah Jesus. Third, Paul imagines the Roman congregations to have been ta ethne, 
former Gentiles, uh, former pagans, Gentiles, uh, to whom Paul had made it his mission to speak as the apostle to the Gentiles. And fourth, Paul adopted, uh, adapted general synagogue Paranesis to commend himself and his gospel to Gentile congregations already familiar with Jewish traditions in the imperial capital. So section two, the Romans debate, seeking an occasion for the letter in Neronian Rome. The general character of Romans as an introductory logos protrepticus, or word of exhortation, has not prevented biblical scholars from reading the letter as a response to specific circumstances in Neronian Rome. The attempts have yielded much debate, while the historical value of the solutions proposed in the Romans debate varies considerably, its overall importance is immense as a testimony to the demand in critical scholarship to read Romans no longer as a timeless compendium of the Christian faith, but as an actual letter addressed to a particular audience on a specific occasion. The leading solution, sometimes called a consensus, places events, often conjectural, on a single trajectory that claims to show an escalating ethnic conflict between Christians and Jews in Rome. The trajectory begins with the so-called Edict of Claudius, expelling Jews from Rome around 49, runs through Paul's letter, which is in 58, and culminates with the local persecution of Christians under Nero in 64. Uh, 64. The Edict of Claudius had expelled the Jews from Rome, just as Suetonius describes it. And this, the full text is number two on your handout. Suetonius identifies the ringleader of the disturbances that prompted the expulsion to have been a certain Crestus, most likely a misspelling of Christ, which scholars within this camp then claim means Jesus followers, who must have caused tensions in their Jewish communities. Pure conjecture follows to make up three modern claims. One, in 54, when Nero became the new emperor and the Claudian edict allegedly lapsed, the Jewish Christ believers returned to find their former influence gone and dramatic social changes in the makeup of the local Christian communities. Two, because the synagogues in Rome must have closed, must have closed down due to the expulsion of their leaders, the local communities of Jesus' followers had become Gentile, more household-based, and unenthusiastic about welcoming back their Jewish brethren. Three, the resulting conflict of the strong, allegedly Gentile, non-Torah observant, and the weak, allegedly Jewish, Torah observant, members of the Christian communities, led Paul to send his letter urging all the believers in Rome, the strong and the weak, uh, to love and reconcile with one another. The Pauline exhortations then on this view refer to a concrete situation in Nero's Rome. The view, however, overlooks the problem of mass expulsions and disruptive subcultures, uh, Greeks, philosophers, astrologers, actors, being a trope in ancient Roman historiography that in actuality would have been very difficult to enforce and likely symbolic. A few biblical scholars then suppose that a tax revolt in Rome, which broke out in 58 when the public demanded an end to the extortions by 
publicani, the freelance revenue collectors, prompted Paul's specific paranesis on Roman imperial authorities. Because Nero responded to the revolt with an edict, an edict requiring the posting of previously secretive tax regulations and other popular reforms, this is all in Tacitus, Annals 13, Paul's admonition to pay taxes uh, and to honor all imperial authorities came at a time when the public support for the emperor must have been high during the supposedly uh, happy uh, good initial five years of his reign and when Paul's audience would have been most receptive to such an exhortation. This trajectory then culminates at the end of the good initial five years, the growing ethnic conflict internal to the congregations of Jesus believers caused the Gentile Christians to become recognizably separated as a group from the Jews as a whole, and therefore an easy target for Nero to scapegoat during the great fire of 64, exactly as Tacitus describes it. And that's number three on your handout for the full text. Now, it's difficult to see how, how the evidence in Romans supports this reconstructed trajectory. Paul mentions no correspondence or news from the Christians in Rome to which he needs to respond, and he's never been there. Rather, Paul's admonitions draw upon the responses he worked out in prior letters, in Galatians and in 1 Corinthians, addressing the specific conflicts in those particular congregations respectively which he now generalizes towards the new goal of introducing his gospel. The rhetoric of Romans reduces Paul's audience to, uh, to tropes, for example, the weak and the strong Christians in faith, probably chosen more because they exemplify the main themes of the epistles, such as justification by faith, than because they described ethnicities in social conflict at Rome. Though undoubtedly Paul had enough information to convince him that his advice about behavior in Christian groups, learned from his previous controversies in Corinth and Galatia, would be relevant in Rome, there is no evidence in Romans of a specific conflict, despite many efforts at mirror reading by modern scholars. To be sure, Paul could employ tropes while simultaneously addressing a concrete Neronian occasion of which he may have had become aware, but this possibility does not in itself validate the leading solution in the Romans debate that I've just outlined. Particularly unexamined is the alleged endpoint of this whole trajectory, Nero's persecution of Christians in 64 as an established fact from which modern scholars then look backward to write their histories of Paul and the Roman Christians in the so-called Age of Nero. The main problem concerns the anachronistic use of Roman classical sources. Suetonius and Tacitus should not be used as prior independent witnesses to the events they describe. In fact, this, the earliest surviving pagan mention of Christians is neither one of these authors, but a letter by Pliny the Younger, um, written during his second year governing Bithynia and Pontus, around uh, 110 and 111. This is number one on your handout. Suetonius accompanied Pliny as a member of his staff. He first learned about the Christians while likely present during their trial proceedings. 
After Pliny's death in office, Suetonius also likely edited his mentor's letters um, from Bithynia into a corpus for wider public dissemination. The dedication of at least part of his Lives of the Caesars dates the work sometime in the 119 to 122 range, later than Pliny's letters. Tacitus, likewise, had a close relationship with Pliny, each regularly exchanging drafts of his work to the other. Writing his, on, his annals five to ten years after Pliny's encounter with the Christians in Bithynia Pontus, Tacitus engaged Pliny's language competitively with clear verbal echoes present throughout that work. The references in Tacitus and Suetonius tell us more about the, the author's own second century experience with Pliny than that of the first century context of Paul in Rome, of Paul in Nero. The myth of Paul's Neronian travails finds its origin in the reception of Nero in late ancient Christian literary culture. So part three of my talk, remembering the age of Nero in late antiquity. Ancient Christian literary culture remembered Nero and his age in various ways. In the Book of Revelation, um, the Book of Revelation provides the earliest reception of an apocalyptic Nero representing all cosmic evil. The author's visions include a multi-headed beast revived from an ineffective death blow who reclaims his imperial rule of the world as an agent of Satan identified by the number 666. These oracles provide thinly veiled references to the legends of Nero's return in current circulation. The common Jewish numerology, or gematria, deploys a name whose transliterated Hebrew letters in Greek spell out Kaiser Neron. The author's hatred of Rome finds particular expression in the role of the unnamed but unmistakable Domitian as Nero Redivivus, an eschatological adversary fashioned as a bloodthirsty tyrant and a persecutor of the Christians. That the historical Domitian was not a persecutor of Christians matters more to history than to ancient apocalyptic imagination. His reign represented Roman imperial power, which was enough to cause, was, which was enough cause for this author's polemic. If the book of, of Revelation represents an apocalyptic Nero, quite a different representation appears in the martyrdom of Paul, the earliest extant account of Nero as the persecutor of Paul. Although the text attributes Nero's actions to the evil one, the contest between Paul and Nero is more individual than cosmic. After the enraged Nero has Paul beheaded, the apostle returns later that day to the imperial court with his head reattached to rebuke the emperor for lacking self-control and violating Roman laws. An admonished Nero obeys the postmortem Paul's commands to free the remaining prisoners. The narrative ends with the, released Roman, uh, with the released Roman soldiers and slaves pledging their allegiance to Paul, who baptizes them and glorifies God. The martyrdom, martyrdom of Paul thus characterizes Paul as more Roman than Nero and better suited to rule the world. While clearly anti-Neronian in theme, the text is near neither anti-Roman nor anti-imperial. 
Another work, the correspondence of Paul in Seneca from the 4th century, also belongs in this mix. The forged Latin correspondence appropriates Seneca as Paul's friend, who decries his emperor's acts of injustice against Roman law on Paul and the Christians in Rome. The effete, lawless Nero, a bad emperor, resembles the anti-Neronian um, character portraits in Tacitus and Suetonius. The apocryphal uh, portrait thus re uh, received its themes and background information from anti-Neronian invective present in wider Roman literary culture. Authors such as Tacitus and Suetonius had denigrated Nero by pointing to specific atrocities of a bad emperor's megalomania, murdering his mother, raping a vestal virgin, committing incest, marrying a freedman dressed up as his dead wife. All this illustrated harmful effects of luxuria, which transformed Nero into an eastern tyrant and the enemy of the populus Romanus. As commonplace rhetoric, the invective emphasized the vice of Nero to show, by contrast, the virtues of the good emperor, which the Christians then appropriated to characterize the apostle Paul as besting Nero in imperial virtues. By condemning uh, Nero and Domitian as ruthless tyrants, Christian apologists were aligning themselves closely to Latin intellectuals. Tertullian, who likely had read the Acts of Paul, makes the connection explicit. Um, his works were among the most widely cited sources in late antiquity for Nero's persecution. Tertullian famously coined the phrase Institutum Neronianum, deploying a Roman legal terminology. This phrase attempted to brand the persecution as yet another instance of Nero's habitual vice rather than denoting an actual law or decree enacted under Nero against the Christians. Tertullian even instructs his readers to find more details about Nero's lurid habits of vice and sacrilege by consulting the Commentarios Westros and the Vitae Caesarum, uh, references to either Suetonius or more likely the Analytic History of Tacitus. The picture of Paul's Neronian travails thus comes from late, unreliable sources. And in fact, the, it's uh, Erosius, the seven books of history against the pagans, written in 416, which achieved immense popularity during the Middle Ages, that provides the fullest account. Erosius is a notoriously unreliable author historically. And late Christian appropriation of anti-Neronian invective merged with apocalyptic antichrist traditions in the writings of the fourth century patristic authors, such as Eusebius and others, when the book of Revelation gained wider acceptance. Lactantius, the, the accomplished Latin rhetorician and advisor to Constantine the Great, uh, recounted God's punishment of each persecuting emperor from Nero to Diocletian. Despite uh, the use of this work in late antiquity as a history of the Roman Empire, the treatise ascribes fictional motivations for Nero that come from the circumstances of Lactantius' own day living under Diocletian, whose great persecution fueled the Antichrist legends of another Nero Redivivus. Arising from these ashes, a full Roman cult of Paul had developed in Rome 
imperially sponsored, that restructured Rome's sacred landscape around Paul as the city's new founder. The decorative iconography of Paul's purported burial sites recalled Roman military laurels and athletic trophies, and his relics received a state feast day on the imperial calendar, which is July 29th. So, in conclusion, late, ancient, uh, late Christian authors placed Paul in Rome because in their imagination, Rome became the home of the martyrs. Martyrdom there came to symbolize victory over the Antichrist, which in late ancient myth and cult ensured everlasting unity between Christianity and the current imperial order. Such remembrances of Paul in the age of Nero belong to this developing hagiography, uh, not to history. Beyond this hagiography, we have little evidence for Paul in Rome. Thank you. because we're being taped. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, there are several questions I'd like to ask, but I'll start with the, just one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that is uh, about the, the legacy of the letter to the Romans. You know, you said yourself uh, and described very nicely uh, how how the early Christ movement, uh, already in Paul's days, was was very diverse, and then if we go, uh, you know, like a century further in time, and we we find people like uh, Marcion and Valentinus and Justin all in in Rome, uh, whether at the same time or you know, not, but but anyway. Uh, and we know that for all these very uh, diverse early Christian teachers, Paul was a very important figure. So how do you, how do you or I'd be curious to know how you envision the, you know, who were the Christians that Paul actually addressed, uh, you, know, we, uh, you know, writing his letter, and uh, how do you envision the kind of the circulation and, and how, how the letter became the kind of inheritance for all these diverse Christian groups? Uh, well, thank you for your question. Um, I, uh, I mean, I, I think Paul himself uh, didn't know the Christians he was addressing. I mean, he, uh, one of the reasons in the final chapter of the letter, he gives such an extensive list of greetings is you can tell he's trying to network really hard, more than you've seen him in any other letter. And so uh, that's why I, I argue that we learn from this letter that Paul is mostly a stranger to them. Um, and also the tone of the letter, um, he is, uh, you know, he's very careful uh, not to be too bossy and to understand, to say that he also can learn uh, some things from them. And uh, so I, I think he's worried um, that he has a reputation and that his reputation has preceded him. And uh, this may not be a good reputation um, because Paul has got enemies. Uh, we know that he's dealt with conflict uh, in Galatia and Corinth. And, uh, and uh, so I think Paul is trying to correct the record by presenting this. So I, I, just, I just 
don't know what we can learn about the Christian communities in Rome from the letter. I mean, I, I just don't think we can know from that. Uh, the next source um, is First Clement. I mean, this is the first uh, source that talks about um, you know Paul's letters, and it comes that comes after you know Romans and. Uh, but that letter, uh, but First Clement's not very helpful either. I mean, he ta- First Clement talks about the author of that letter is talking about, um, you know, uh, I think it's suggesting Paul's martyrdom and how he. I don't remember the exact wording, but he's a uh, a hero of the East and the West, which seems to suggest that Paul made it to Spain, <laughs> and uh, and somehow had a. You know, so he made. Where was he martyred, though? Um, I don't think that's clear. Uh, but it's clear that he and Peter were martyred, maybe together, the ideas. Um, but, but there is that Spa- Spanish connection that's made there. Um, so I don't know we can learn much from that. Um, then there, there's the letters of Ignatius, but he just quotes the letter. I don't think he knows Paul directly. So that brings us to 150 with the figures you're talking about of uh, Valentinus and Marcin and Justin Martyr. And, and they all were in Rome around the same time as teachers. It's interesting to think how diverse Christianity was. And Valentinus is an interesting figure because he knows Paul through his teacher, Thutis. Um, uh, we don't know much, we don't know any more about Thutis, but uh, Paul taught Thutis, who then taught um, uh, Valentinus. So, um, I, I don't know where, I mean, presumably that was in Alexandria, you know. So, uh, so the presence of Paul in Rome is, is, is not that strong. It's more of a memory. So I, I guess that's all I can say. And uh, always question your sources. <laughs> the Michael Jordan principle. Thank you for your lecture. I have a, a question about this issue of Paul in Rome. There's a group of Greek archaeologists um, inspired somewhat by the arguments of Helmut Kester and Charalambos Bakurgis that try to place Paul in Philippi and a martyrdom tradition of Paul in Philippi. Mm, yes. And I wasn't sure if you would be willing to talk about that or tradi- traditions in other cities that I may not know of Paul being active and cultically appreciated in those regions. I, I just don't know. I mean, I just, uh, I, I just don't know. Um, I think that the evidence for this is quite late, if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, and I think we have, um, I mean, com- rival centers in Rome. I mean, even in Rome, I mean, Paul's remains, um, you know, was in, was in multiple places. And there's even a story of people from the East trying to steal Paul's body in the night in Rome and bring him back to the East. And so... Uh, clearly, owning Paul's body became important uh, for later Christians, which uh, led to a rise of his cult. Uh, but I just don't think we can use that as evidence for the historical Paul's own death and location of that. Because um, people want to argue, it's kind of like George Washington slept here or something. Uh, um, some of that's historical, but so it may not be a good analogy, but it, it, people want to uh, legitimate their traditions as uh, coming from Paul, and um, owning the body becomes a, a way to do that. Um, and we see um, com- competition over who, uh, who houses the final remains, even within the city of Rome. So I uh, can't say much more than that. I mean, it's just, I, I'm not even sure that the author of Acts, Luke, knew where Paul died, uh, or, or, or 
He doesn't talk about it. I mean, presumably it would be in Rome, but it's interesting he doesn't describe it. Um, Thanks very much. That was that was really great. Um, I, you intrigued me um, in wondering about the construction of the consensus story. Oh yes. <laughs> you know, um, and if you could say say more about that. I mean, how how are uh, those who are claiming this kind of consensus <coughs> treating those sources? I mean, it's kind of a what is the evidence evidence of? Is it primarily correlation between topics? Uh, I, I just would be very interested in your talking about the methodology involved in that consensus. So maybe. the consensus story is the, the Roman debate of using the handout, plenty and it's right. an, I mean, it's, right. it's becoming very apparent to me now that my new home is uh, being in classics and history. Um, so uh, I mean, it's, it, it, it's, equ it's the equivalent of trying to make a life of Jesus where you harmonize the Gospels, um, where you're taking disparate sources uh, allegedly independent witnesses, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and um, just take the synoptics, and then you, you harmonize this. And I think, uh, I mean, New Testament scholars need to be as critical of the sources they read in the low classical library as they are of the sources they read in their New Testament. And they need to apply those critical skills. And just because something's in Suetonius, uh, a second century source, um, doesn't mean that it's a transcript of what happened. So um, I think it's just uh, uh, theology abhors a vacuum, and people want to um, uh, people want to um, find a concrete connection between Paul and Nero and Paul and the Christian communities. And um, I mean, they put together sources that talk about the Great Fire, um, the uh, the riot of the Jews at the instigation of Crestus. Um, and then uh, sources about um, Nero and the Great Fire, and they put all this together when no one source tells what the consensus, uh, doesn't, tell, doesn't tell the series of events the consensus claims. You have to harmonize them all to make that work. So is, is that the case too with the tax issue and the, ta you know, and the connection between Paul's talking about the tax? Yeah, I mean, well, uh, the tax issue is actually only mentioned in Tacitus. And, um, and it's just there, Paul, Paul says you should pay taxes. And then we find in Tacitus there was a tax revolt. So you just put two and two together. Um, so it, it's, it's not much different than using the book of Acts to fill in the gaps of our knowledge uh, uh, with Paul. By, you know, we, don't know Paul, we don't know much about Paul's life from his letters, so we fill in the gaps by using the book of Acts. And so they're just using Tacitus for that, but there's, I mean, I mean, yeah, it's just, it, it, it's, it's pure conjecture, really. And it's amazing to me that this gets into textbooks. I'm just Interested in knowing a little bit more about this. You were, you've um, brought up several times the hagiographic tradition um, around Paul and, of course, around Peter as well, and that there's a real geographical sort of itinerary throughout Rome and in its suburbia, you know, dedicated to the apostles, not just St. Peter's and St. Paul's, but St. Sebastian's, um, the Tre Fontane, the, um, where his head supposedly 
Paul's head supposedly bounced three times. Yes, yes. Causing the three pools. Yes, yes we yes. can all, <laughs> we all know, know these. Um, but the thing that puzzles me is that Rome was pretty good, I would say, about attributing martyrs, I mean, if they brought in a martyr, they would say they did in later fifth and uh, fourth and especially fifth century, um, kind of the acta sanctora of their time. Um, so therefore, why would it be that Rome would have appropriated Peter and, and Paul, but not the many other martyrs whose relics um, the city later housed? Uh, great question. I mean, one of the, I actually addressed this in my, in my book on Paul the Apostle. I, uh, I actually, that, what are the, the project of that book was to, I was charged to write a biography of Paul and this key themes of, 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 of key themes, uh, no, key figures in uh, classical antiquity. And they had Augustus, uh, they had Socrates, and they wanted to bring in Paul. And, um, and I, I just, I said, we don't have enough evidence to write a biography of Paul. We just don't, we can't do that. So I'll write an anti-biography. Um, where I don't talk about a single life, and I don't begin with chapter one with his birth and end with his death. I mean, how can we do that? And uh, so I talk about uh, uh, the historical Paul as different from the Paul of the past, and how this is constructed, and I, uh, I, I, what I'm aiming there is to contest the, um, the idea that Paul was anti-imperial. And uh, so that I followed this theme of the Roman Paul, and the attempt to make Paul Roman as we go into uh, uh, later periods of Christianity. And I, you see that happening even in the book of Acts, where um, Paul is, uh, you know, the one of the famous scenes where he reveals his Roman citizenship is precisely where he encounters a Roman tribune who says, you're a Roman citizen? I had to pay for it. And Paul says, I was born, it. Uh, I was born a Roman citizen. So, I mean, who's the real Roman in the text? It's, and so Paul turns out to be more Roman than uh, a Roman commander. And then in the Acts, uh, and then in the, the martyrdom of Paul, you have this similar dynamic there of Paul being more Roman than Nero. So uh, I, I chart this out in the book, and the first book is about, the, is about um, trying to deal with Paul's career, and the second book is dealing with the legacy of Paul. And, um, and there I'm looking at the construction of the martyrdom of Paul. The martyr, the martyr cult of Paul, and uh, it's all about the construction of Paul as a Roman, and uh, and and it's more important for Paul than for any other apostle, um, and uh, and so I would I would I would go there to explain why Paul was a, was a different case in that regard because there's even um, I mean there's even in, during the martyr cult they actually want to uh, uh, you know, say that Paul is, you know, born from the East, but we have made him one of our own. So, uh, so that's how I would respond to that. So, tr tr uh, so tra tracing the development of Paul becoming more and more Roman. Um, in Paul's literary and cultic afterlife that you're describing, where he becomes progressively more Roman, yeah. um, is his Jewishness completely elided? Or? You betcha. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Um, yes. And this is even picked up by those who wanted nothing to do with Paul. Um, 
the, uh, I mean, you've got the literature that's attributed to the Ebionites. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the tales there was Paul was originally a, a Greek who went to Jerusalem and um, saw, a, you know, the daughter of one of the priests and got himself circumcised to impress her and she, she, she scorned him, sporn, you know, he didn't get the girl and so he just spent his whole life then attacking Torah. Um, so uh, there's even, among those who wanted not, nothing to do with Paul, there is, they take away his Jewishness as well. Coming back to Jessica's uh, suggestion, um, so for some reason, for the Roman communities, it was advantageous to have a Peter and a Paul together which is also an, a sort of an odd phenomenon, uh, mm -hmm. if you come to think of it. But still, uh, the, uh, historically, Paul in Rome is very early, if you compare that to, to, to other places, uh, since we have the, the Gaius report at the end of the second century, uh, the, uh, uh, in Eusebius, who speaks about a, a man of the church uh, around 200, maybe 190, mm. who already saw a, a veneration of Peter in the Vatican, Paul in the Ostiense, and then in the, uh, the uh, Basilica Apostolorum, which mm. we call uh, San Sebastiano, also all mentioned by Eusebius. So, uh, that if you look in, in historical terms, that is very early. Well, I would, um, if you're speaking historical terms, I would say uh, the actual source we're dealing with is a fourth century source. And, well, <laughs> I mean, historically, that's what we're dealing with. And, yeah, and but uh, I mean, if Eusebius says that he quotes, then he usually does, and, and some of things. And then there are excavations. Well, I mean, this is uh, this is part of what I this is part of my thesis here uh -huh, is that sure. um, I mean, I I, mean, I I'm working you know in a, in a classics department. I'm working with colleagues who. You know, who try to look at the pre-Socratics, and we only know them through fragments, and these fragments are actually quite late, and it's uh, part of what's going on in the field is that they're starting to look at the context in which these fragments appeared, which no one actually really looked at. They just took the fragments, and uh, people are doing the same thing in Roman law, because how do, we, how do we reconstruct what Roman law is? We'll look at Justinian's Digest, which is sixth century, and uh, and uh, Justinian actually had a whole project of wanting to make sure there was no contradictions in, in Roman law. He had a certain agenda in putting together the digest. So when you take out excerpts from the digest, um, when he does quote uh, first and second century jurists, um, and I actually dealt with this in an article when I wrote about Philemon and whether Onesimus is a runaway slave, and many of the arguments about whether he is or isn't based on Roman law as well and, and the Roman jurists talk about this and I go well these jurists actually are quoted in a later source yeah and we, we have need to pay attention to the gender of there. the mid third century in the in San Sebastiano so uh, that you have other places around 200 is is really 
early <laughs> for for uh, people who study late antiquity. So they <laughs> see for New Testament scholars, that's quite late. That's Paul's fifties, <laughs> and uh, so I, uh, is again, it's just using second. I mean, you, this is we're in a cult. I mean, I'm in a field. I'm in a field that has great difficulty using Matthew, Mark, and Luke to understand the historical Jesus. And um, so, you know, the argument that you can't go back, you know, Jesus is 30, and the earliest written gospel is like 70. And it's very difficult to get past, you know, the tunnel period. And, you know, and, and so I'm just saying we should use that same critical methodology when we look at other sources oh, absolutely. that talk about events. And in fact, the source is also actually quite late. But the, the Tropeum, uh, tri uh, tropeum uh, Patri, Tropeum Pauli, Mm -hmm. which have been excavated, sort of, mm -hmm. can be dated to the late second century, 190. So, so that's, I would say, historical fact. Mm -hmm. I, I would just say that's late. <laughs> I mean, if we're, we're talking about the historical Paul. And I mean, it would certainly, I mean, that's evidence for the rise of the martyr cult, which, you know, happened later. Um, For the martyr cult, yes, but not for the historical Paul. That's my point. Yeah. Thanks, Bert. Yeah. This is great. Um, back more than two decades ago, I was a student of Meyer Reinhold, and I remember being extremely suspicious of sources with him. And at one point, he finally said, um, at some point, you're going to want to tell the story. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, instead of being in a position of what we would now call deconstructing the sources, you're going to end up needing the sources to be able to tell some kind of story. And I'm not hearing you tell much of a story. No, that wasn't my point, because it's, oh, uh, no, I, 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 have, I, I have a book for that. I mean, the response yeah. is that <laughs> if you want, I, I didn't want to just repeat what I have in the book, but, and that yeah. was, the, as I said, the challenge of writing a book on Paul was, um, first of all, I don't want to repeat what is already out there. And I, I was very hesitant to take on this, this role, and I certainly would not have done this pre-tenure, because I, you know, these kind of popular books often, um, don't look bad on someone's record, and I was prohibited from using footnotes, which was very difficult for me, which I don't think I, I hadn't written like that maybe since the eighth grade. And <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I, I, um, I decided to tell the story of multiple Pauls, and my thesis there is that Paul is a key figure of classical antiquity, not because of his life, of what he did during his life, but because of what his followers um, created uh, in his legacy. And, uh, and so I made that the story of the book. And, um, and uh, what I wanted to do was to, uh, uh, to decenter the idea that we can identify Paul's self and that there is a single story there. And I wanted to, uh, to break that apart. And that's why I said it was an antibiography. Um, but and to get back to the you know your question about the the consensus, I think the reason why you have this consensus in the Romans debate is because people want a story. Mm 
And I even had one major scholar tell me that if you take away the book of Acts, then you, you, you can't write a life of Paul. And I said, well, that's, no ar that's not a historical argument. <laughs> I mean, and, uh, but uh, people, people um, um, they privilege the story over the evidence. And, and people don't want to have inconclusive, um, um, you know, uh, they, they don't want a, a story that's not complete. I mean, they want, and, and so as a historian, I'm trying to, uh, to uh, question that and to say that we need to think about where the story came from. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I, I was um, in 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 response thinking through this question. Um, you know, I I hoped that that was how you were going to answer. Uh, so I, I really appreciate okay. uh, really appreciate that answer because it seems to me like yeah, you're telling a story. It's just not the story of Paul the real guy, uh, because you're saying we don't have access to that in the way we might like to have access to that. Um, so you're telling a story of ideas about Paul and various Pauls, um, and actually on the subject of possible. Uh, alternative stories about real guys in the past and whether we have access to them or not. Uh, I'm interested in, in your mention of Ignatius um, a little while ago uh, as a potential evidence for the early reception of the letters of Paul uh, alongside First Clement. And I think you're pointing out that with First Clement, with Acts, and with Ignatius, uh, you don't have any uh, clear, you know, tradition yet of Paul dying in no. Rome, no. You're saying that's much later in in the in the martyrdom uh, and and subsequent sources. But what do we make of the fact that Ignatius's letters, as a collection, are anchored around a letter to the Romans in which Ignatius is envisioning himself dying in Rome? Um, could you take that as, on some level, uh, evidence of an association with Paul dying in Rome if Ignatius is in some sort of a Pauline mold? Or do you see that as a parallel story that's being told around the same time as these ideas are developing around Paul? Um, and that what we have here are two different snapshots of this evolving association with Rome and as a home for the martyrs. Um, what, what do you make of that? Uh, that's pretty interesting and intriguing. I hadn't thought of that. Um, of course, this is not the itinerary that Ignatius is choosing. You know, he's not choosing to go there because he has to go to the same place that Paul died. So he's going there and he's, uh, he's quoting, I'd have to look at how he quotes Romans, but I don't think he makes the parallels. Well, that, I, and I guess what I'm, what I'm saying might is, suggest. If, uh, okay, I guess what I'm saying is, does the, do the, does the letter collection of, of Ignatius show some sort of a knowledge of a tradition of Paul dying in Rome whether or not the question of the historical Ignatius knows of Paul dying in Rome. That's the sort, I guess that's a, that's a distinction. So you're talking about the, the, the you mean the, the, the Pauline letter collection that Ignatius has access to, or the, the Ignatius letters themselves as a collection? I'm talking about the, yeah, the, the Ignatius letters themselves as a collection. I, um, I'd have to go back and look at the evidence there, but that's an interesting idea. Um, um, yeah, I just would need to look at the evidence. Right. I had thought Thank of you. that. Thank well, you. Well, I need to look too, so yeah. Yeah, I had thought of that. There's a dissertation there, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you talked a bit about some of the motivations and 
biblical studies as a field for kind of this consensus building and story model, mm -hmm. but you talked at the beginning about the audience for this piece being classic. So I'm wondering if you could reflect on some of the uh, motivations or trends that you see coming out of classics that are asking for um, similar, like the questions you were asked were not the questions you, you went and answered. So I, I'm wondering if you could reflect on that a bit. So uh, yeah, it was, it was actually interesting for me when I was uh, talking with uh, the editors through email. And I mean, classics, uh, the field of classics, they just will not look at the journal of biblical literature. They will not look at uh, journals in our field because they, I think part of it, they just don't know how to navigate this. Um, my earliest uh, experience with this was my first graduate paper. Um, I uh, was dealing with the question of was Paul a Roman citizen and uh, the book of Acts. And it was just, uh, I just looked up footnotes, right? And so I went to um, a commentary on Acts and it said that, um, you know, Paul's appeal is something that uh, has historical basis because we know that uh, in the first century, uh, citizens could appeal to a magistrate and get their hearing in Rome. And so I, I didn't stop at that commentary. I went to um, the source, um, which was um, uh, uh, on a Roman law. And uh, uh, that source gave as its footnote the book of Acts. And I was like, what? And I, and I found that uh, sort of this circle going back and forth. And I showed this to my teacher, Hans Dieter Betz, who was like, oh my god. <laughs> you should publish that. And I never published it. You know, it's like, it's my first year. And so I got, that's how I impressed Hans Dieter Betz. But, uh, but yeah, it was just, uh, it's just the, uh, the uh, sort of almost, I mean, similar to what a fundamentalist would, uh, the way classics looked at, classics uh, scholars looked at the book of Acts, and it's just, when I, when I say to people who are visiting, you know, you just can't use the book of Acts, I said, what? And, and, and they don't know anything about the, uh, the Deuteropauline letters or anything like this. So uh, I think in the field, they're very interested in this. And I've been, now that I've been invited to several conferences of classicists and ancient historians, and they're very interested in the intersection of, of uh, Christian literature and, and Greco-Roman literature. And my point always at these conferences is that early Christian literature is Roman literature. It is Greek literature. It's not a separate culture. It's, these were, it's the same cultures. So you shouldn't think about uh, how do we compare Christian writers with, uh, with uh, Greco-Roman writers, that Christian writers are an instance of, uh, or an example of this, of, of the same culture. And uh, so uh, that's kind of what I'm, I'm, I'm seeing more of. And, uh, and I like, yeah, so thanks. then you're in luck okay because this is a very easy question because it's more of an observation i was chuckling as we were talking about how late uh, a late second century source was because <laughs> um, obviously this is earlier than anything i really uh, spend my time with but I, actually what you're describing reminds me of uh, the oversized christian reaction to julian the apostate um, so this tremendous sort of rupture in Christian historiography, genders all sorts of literature, who was this figure? And the sort of invective against Julian serves to prop up a kind of Christian 
um, ideology of Rome and, and specifically to build up two Roman emperors, in this case, Constantine and Theodosius as, mm -hmm. as um, sort of bulwarks of orthodoxy. So I, that's in part an observation to say that it sounds like a that this is a, a, a second instance or an echo of the, what you're describing here, which is the Christian memory of Rome under Nero is serving both to demonize a Roman emperor, but not to demonize the Roman Empire, but instead to show him that, that he is not up, he is in fact a very poor Roman. Um, yeah. Is there any Roman emperor, early Roman emperor, that the Christians uh, praise and counterpoint to Nero? Maybe Augustus. I mean, I'm just trying to think of the, you know, the looking at the the birth narratives of Jesus um, in in Luke. I mean, there's a kind of heralding of a new age and and the appropriation of the language of of that Augustus used of you know peace on earth and uh, uh, bringing goodwill and um, I mean, I think that uh, that was seems very hopeful and I. I mean, I don't know of any negative Christian um, writings against Augustus. Mm -hmm. I don't know of any. So I would say him. So Augustus is to Nero what Constantine is to Julian or something and, and, like that. And, and, and the reason to saying that is that when you had Vespasian, I mean, one of the things Vespasian had to do is that, you know, he's coming from a different dynasty, and he has to legitimate himself um, one of the things he does is he says, even though that Nero is the last Julio-Claudian, he's actually not from that family. Uh, he's, he's an illegitimate um, uh, member of that family, and Vespasian presented himself as a new Augustus. And uh, so that's what the Flavian, uh, the Flavian literature of the age um, promoted this anti-Neronian uh, invective. Um, and of course, Vespasian's not being anti-Rome or anti-imperial. What he's doing is he's trying to legitimate himself as, um, as the lawful and moral successor to Augustus. And I think that uh, Christians are, are participating in that same anti-Neronian invective to argue that Paul is, and ultimately the Christian uh, you know, emperor. I'd be interesting to see what Constantine does, or, or later, like Theodosius, um, um, that we are the le legitimate successors of Augustus. Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank you, Bert, very much for your talk. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.